Can you keep a secret? Lydia didn't know Justin very well yet, so the question surprised her. I think so. I think I can keep a secret. Justin gave her a questioning look. Of course I can keep a secret, she corrected herself. I've been thinking of giving you something, said Justin. But you have to promise me not to tell anyone about it. No one. Okay, Lydia said. He handed her what appeared to be a credit card in a slipcase. But the credit card uh, was not that. It was blank with a line of zeros all across it. On the slipcase were embossed two words, absolute discretion. She looked at the card and, what is this? She asked him. Justin refused to answer any of her questions. On the back of the card was an invitation that read the following. You have been invited to visit the San Francisco House of the Latitude. Beneath that was a web address and a security code. She quickly pulled out her phone, looked up the address, and put something in to find out what the House of the Latitude was. She came to a website and set up an appointment. What she found there was like a kind of initiation adventure into San Francisco's very own secret society, the Latitude. Now, there was nothing uh, wrong with this society, nothing occultish and nothing inappropriate, although it was very secretive. Um, What she found out was that it was apparently just the product of some young people who were a little bit bored and had a lot of money to spend. So you do what you do, you make your own secret society. The whole thing was set up around just finding out club secrets, and members would meet together online or meet in person at restaurants and discuss clues that they had found or just hang out. Eventually, the money all ran out, and the latitude was over. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be part of a secret society? There's something really interesting about it to me. Um, the secrecy, the finding out about these, I don't know, just things that not everybody knows, the exclusivity of it. You may not be a part of a secret society yourself. However, if you're a Christian here, we are all part of a society that is far more important and influential than any secret society. And of course, I'm speaking of the church. Through the church, individual hearts have been changed and the course of history has been altered. The church is the not-so-secret society by which God is working out his plan in the world. But what is the church? And what kind of church am I talking about here? Um, This is the topic that I want to examine today. What is the church? Now, the topic of the church is obviously far too great to cover in just one sermon. Um, We could spend months of sermons talking about all kinds of issues here. So my goal is not to give anything comprehensive. All I want to do today is examine, based on the scriptures, what God says the church is. Simply stated, we're going to explore how the Bible answers the question, what is the church? 
So to answer that question, it's only fitting that we begin by examining the very first passage of the scriptures that references the church. So turn with me to Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. Matthew 16, 18 through 19. Again, these two verses record the very first time that the church is mentioned. So that we understand the context, you can read along with me, starting from verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now comes our verses, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In these verses, Jesus foretells that he will build his church. Now, these two verses contain several important ideas for defining the church, but first we need to examine the word church itself. What does this word mean, and why is it that when the apostles wrote the New Testament, they chose this word to refer to the community that Jesus would build? Well, the Greek word behind our English church is ekklesia. It's a compound word which combines the preposition ek, out of, with the verb kaleo, to call. So literally, the word ekklesia refers to a group of people who are maybe called out or summoned together. Now, you may have heard many preachers before say that because this Greek word literally means outcalled, that the church is a group of people who is called out of the world to follow Christ. Well, that sounds like a pretty good definition. However, if we come to this conclusion based solely on the etymology of the word ecclesia, we've actually committed a fallacy. So let me explain. Sometimes compound words mean exactly what they sound like. For instance, a handshake is just that. It's a handshake. However, sometimes that's not the case. Uh, for instance, the word butterfly does not reference a fly that's made from butter. And there are countless other examples. Kidnap, honeymoon, strawberry, bulldoze. None of these words make any sense if you try to take the parts that make them up literally. So how do we know that the word ecclesia actually refers to a group of people that's being outcalled of the world? Well, we can't just look at its etymology. We need to look at how this word is used in first century Greek. Originally, the word ecclesia referred to an assembly of citizens called out for the purpose of city government. However, hundreds of years later when the New Testament was written, ecclesia came to be referred to really any assembly of people, not necessarily a group of people called out for a purpose. One clear example of this is in um, Ephesians, or excuse me, in Acts 19, where ecclesia refers to the Ephesian mob that comes out against Paul. 
Um, so although there's nothing particularly religious or spiritual about the word ecclesia itself, it's still a significant word because the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this word to refer to the nation of Israel. Additionally, Stephen uses the word ecclesia to refer to the assembly of Israel in Acts 7.38. In fact, if you're reading from a King James Version this morning and you look at Acts 7.38, you'll see that the translators actually used the word church to refer not to the New Testament body of Christ, but to the Old Testament community of Israel. This information is tremendously helpful for our study because it demonstrates that Ecclesia has a history of referring to God's people called out of the world to follow him. Thus, even though Ecclesia doesn't always refer to a called out assembly, this word is highly suggestive of the nature of the church as a group of people who are called out of the world to follow Christ. That is the first thing these verses teach us about the church. Jesus calls individuals to come out of the world to form his church. The second thing we see in these verses is that Jesus predicts Peter's role in the church. Look again with me at verse 18. It says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. If you don't know Greek, you're going to miss the play on words that's happening here. You'll remember that Peter's given name was not Peter, but it was Simon or Simeon. In response to Simon's confession, Jesus gives Peter this nickname, Peter in English, or Petros in Greek, meaning stone. Thus, Jesus is saying, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, historically, the Catholic Church has used this verse to argue for Peter's supreme authority over all of the church as the first pope. This has led to much debate over what Jesus' statement actually means here and whether or not this rock actually refers to Peter. um, Many Protestants offer two alternative interpretations, although these are not the only alternate interpretations that could be given here. One is that the rock on which the church will be built is Jesus himself. Thus, Jesus is saying, you are a rock, but on this rock... I will build my church. Another alternative is that the rock is not Peter himself, but Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. There are strong arguments on both sides, and though we don't have time to examine all of them now, I'll tell you what I think to be the best option, and later you can ask Dr. Cook and maybe the other elders if they think I did a good job on this one or not. In my opinion, I think the best uh, option here is that the rock refers to Peter himself. The wordplay on Peter's name makes it difficult for me to see any other antecedent being this rock. And it's evident from Acts that after the church was founded, Peter held a major leadership role amongst the apostles and in the church. But let me be clear, I'm not advocating for the Roman Catholic idea that Peter had complete authority over the church or that he passed this authority down to his successors who became the popes. This doctrine is contrary to the scriptures. In Acts 11, for instance, we can see Peter having to explain himself for the fact that Gentiles have joined the church. Um, In Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council, uh, Peter does not seem to be the one in charge. Rather, it's James, the Lord's brother, who seems to be leading things. And finally, Paul records in Galatians 2, publicly rebuking Peter. Um, So clearly, Peter was not an absolute monarch like the popes are today, but more of a first among equals. 
regardless of what you believe the antecedent of this rock to be, the Roman Catholic interpretation cannot be defended from this verse. Christ's church is not found with the authority of one man in Rome. The final thing we see in these verses is that Jesus gives the church authority over the world. The first, uh, uh, we first see the power Jesus gives his church in the statement, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The phrase gates of hell most likely refers to the power of death rather than the, uh, the forces of evil. This phrase is used in this way, referring to the power of death in Greek literature, in the Apocrypha, and even in Job, Psalms, and Isaiah. And the keys to the kingdom of heaven likely indicate opening and closing the entrance to God's kingdom through membership to the church. Uh, one verse that helps us understand this is Matthew 18:18, 18, 18, which also contains the phrase, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This phrase is in the context of church discipline and is referring to um, excommunicating an alleged believer who is unrepentantly living in sin. This strongly suggests that the keys are a reference to the power to grant and deny access to the people of God. An example of Peter using this authority is when he visits Cornelius and Gentiles are added to the church. Matthew 18.18 also demonstrates that the keys to the kingdom of heaven are not meant for Peter alone, but are meant for the whole church. In Matthew 18, Jesus is not speaking to Peter only, but he's speaking to all of his disciples. Thus, not only Peter, but all of the church is given authority to open and close the doors of heaven to the world. One final note on these verses deserves mention. Grammatically, the Greek phrase will be bound and will be loosed in heaven is not the simple future tense to which it's translated in the ESV, but is actually future perfect. Literally, it reads, whatever you shall bind or loose on earth will have been bound or have been loosed in heaven. Thus, heaven is not ratifying what Peter and the church decides. Rather, whatever Peter and the church decides is being, has already been decided in heaven. In summary, the church is a called-out assembly built by Jesus through the twelve disciples with Peter at their head. The powers of death will never destroy Jesus' church, and Jesus has given the church authority over the world. But when Jesus said these things to the disciples, he was speaking of a future reality. Um, the church itself came into being later, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Let's turn there now. And as you turn there, let me take a moment to remind you of the context of the verses in Acts 2. We'll be looking at Acts 2, 37 through 41. It's the Feast of Pentecost, and the Jews have come to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire to celebrate. In the morning, the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles, and they begin speaking in tongues. Peter then preaches the gospel of Christ to those listening. Follow along with me as I read verses 37 through 41, which gives their response to his message. Now, when they heard that this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for our children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. We see from these verses that while Jesus foretold that he would build the church, the Holy Spirit initiates the church at Pentecost. That the Holy Spirit initiates the church should not be surprising, since he was promised by Jesus before his crucifixion in John 16, and before his ascension in Acts 1, 4-5, which I'll read for you. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This foretold coming of the Spirit happened at Pentecost, first to the twelve apostles, and then to those who believed the gospel and were baptized. Looking again at our passage, we can see that the Holy Spirit is announced by Peter in Acts 2, 16 through 17, and also in verse 33. Not only does the Holy Spirit initiate the church itself, but he also initiates believers into the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. When a new believer receives the Holy Spirit, he is brought into the universal church, the body of fellowship with God and other believers that extends to all of God's people. According to Genesis 3, 26 through 27 and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, faith in Christ is necessary in order to join the church and receive the Spirit. Whoever believes will repent, be baptized, receive the Spirit, and become a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Normal social clubs or secret societies are bound together by mundane things like human relationships, social outings, and online forums or social networks. But the church is bound together by something far more awesome and mysterious, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit of God. The baptism of the Spirit, which takes place in each individual believer, initiates them into a spiritual fellowship with every other believer in the world. There is a mystic unity between members of the church that cannot be matched by any human organization. Let's review what's been covered so far. Jesus' assembly which he foretold in Matthew 16, was founded at Pentecost by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the lifeblood of the church, uniting those who believe, joining them into one body, and granting them fellowship with the Father. But this is far from everything that the scriptures tell us about the church. Finally, let's examine two major images Paul uses to illustrate the church and her role towards God and others. These are not the only illustrations of the church that we find in the scriptures, but these are two major ones that I want to look at today. Uh, the first we'll find in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. Turn with me there to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. We read verse 13 a moment ago, but now we'll look at verse 12 to give it a little bit more context about the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
for the, one, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Paul teaches in these verses that the church is the unified body of Christ. This is Paul's most frequently used illustration for the church. Two other passages that use it are Ephesians 4.15 and Colossians 1.18, both of which identify Christ as the head of the body. This implies submission to Christ, who gives commands to the body. The illustration of the body also implies unity amongst differences. Galatians 3.28 teaches that the church cannot be divided by ethnic group, gender, or social status. All are equal in the church. No matter how important or unimportant you are in the, equal, or in, the, in, the, uh, in the world's eyes, we are all in the same place in Christ. In the church, the poorest beggar is just as important as the richest king. As we previously read in 1 Corinthians 12, 14, the church, like a human body, is diverse. Verses 17 through 20 also emphasize this diversity in the midst of unity. These verses read, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. A human body has many kinds of parts and organs, and though the ear may not be as beautiful as the eye, both are important. Even so, God brings all kinds of people into the church to fulfill many diverse roles. Not everyone can preach from the pulpit, nor is everyone suited to teach children or to administrate events. Rather than trying to squeeze members of the church into a mold um, that all are the same, believers should embrace the diversity that God intended the church to have. Lastly, the image of the body shows that members of the church are mutually dependent on one another for growth in Christ. Paul highlights this truth in Ephesians 4:15 through 16. These verses read, rather than speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In a human body, the different body parts keep each other healthy. And if one part is sick or malfunctioning, the others suffer. Even so, every member of the church should keep the other members spiritually healthy by helping them grow into Christ's image. Turn with me now to Ephesians 2, 19-22, and we'll examine a second image that Paul uses to illustrate the church. Ephesians 2, 19-22. That is, a holy temple built by God. Follow along as I read Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There are two facets of this image that I want to draw your attention to. The first is that the church models itself after Christ. Verse 20 calls Christ the cornerstone of the building. 
The cornerstone was a brick placed at the corner of the structure, which served as a guide for the rest of the building. As bricks were being added, they had to be carefully aligned with the cornerstone in order to make sure that the building remained square. Like the illustration of the body uh, submitting to the head, um, the cornerstone also demands submission of the church. Um, This illustration shows that we need to align ourselves to Christ by living according to his teachings and gospel. In this way, the church grows into a holy temple built by God. The second aspect of this illustration is that the church is holy because the Holy Spirit dwells in it. The church is holy because the Holy Spirit dwells in it. Paul brings out this truth in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. These verses read, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Later in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul will speak of the individual believer as the temple of God. But in this passage, he refers to the corporate body as being God's temple. Whenever believers sin or tolerate sin in their local congregations, they profane the temple of God. But positively, God makes a group of people who are unholy into a holy temple for himself because he is holy. We've seen that the church is the called-out assembly of Jesus, that the church was founded by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and that she is the body of Christ and the temple of God. But how do these truths affect you today? To conclude, let's apply what God's Word teaches us about the church so that we can better fulfill His purpose for us. First, if God has called you out of the church, it is necessary for you to be separate from, or excuse me, if God has called you out of the world to form the church, it is necessary for you to be separate from the world. In Romans 12, 2, Paul exhorts you, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This means that if you call yourself a believer, God expects you to live a life that is separate and immediately identifies you as being separated to God rather than living for yourself. For example, the unbelievers you encounter, be they classmates, coworkers, teammates, or just friends, should be able to guess that you're a Christian without you having to tell them. Your kindness, patience, honesty, humility, diligence, and morals should set you apart from everyone else. When everyone else complains about the overbearing supervisor, you don't join in and make fun of him with them. You don't lose your temper even when you're provoked to anger. You don't try to get by with as little work as possible. You don't use God's name as an expletive or curse just to fit in with the other people around you who use the same language. You must live differently from the world in order to be separate from the world. Second, if the church is the temple of God, you must keep God's temple pure from false believers. Paul applies this truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. One of the members at the church of Corinth was having an open affair with his stepmother. The entire church knew about it, and apparently they were also proud of it. Paul very strongly speaks to them in chapter 5 and corrects their thinking in verse 6. 
He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This sexual sin of the supposed brother not only defiled God's temple, but would also corrupt the other church members if not dealt with. Paul commands them to cut off all ties with this active fornicator who claims to be a part of God's church in verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. The process of church discipline is a very significant topic, and it deserves its own sermon. But for now, suffice it to say that the church must not tolerate the presence of those who call themselves Christians, but actively and unrepentantly live in sin. Third, if the church is the body of Christ, its members should share a spirit of unity amongst each other and not of division. This means that you must love and build up all believers, whether they attend this church or another like-minded church or even another denomination, assuming, of course, that that denomination accepts the fundamentals of the faith. One of my seminary professors shared an example of how local churches might do this. He told us how he heard one pastor leading his congregation for other churches in prayer by their name. In this way, that pastor not only affirmed their congregation's unity with these other churches, but he also helped foster a spirit of unity and not of competition. In the same way, you as individual believers should pray for believers outside of this local body and be eager to minister with them when the opportunity arises. Fourth and finally, if the church is the body of Christ and each member is mutually dependent on each other, you must actively seek the spiritual growth of the people around you today. This means that you must build relationships with the people in this local congregation, but not merely casual friendships. You must build relationships that are focused on challenging each other to a better relationship with Christ. There are many ways to build such relationships. You could start a group Bible study with some of the people you already know here, or be faithfully involved with the discipleship groups that we already have in place. Um, there's no wrong way to do it necessarily. These things are great, and I encourage you to participate them as much as you are able. But in order for these activities to foster a spirit of building each other up, you have to do the hard work of building strong relationships with people. Um, it is hard work because I know this is something that I struggle with and something that I need to improve even in this congregation. Um, but we need to start doing that, and I need to start doing that better. Um, Start by choosing to love the people around you and find ways to know them better and to serve them better. Um, ask people about themselves. Try to understand who they are and how you can show love to them. As you build rapport with others, you'll find plenty of opportunities to invest in them and speak the truth in love. And as you seek ways to build others up, you also will make yourself more available to be built up by others. The Church of Jesus Christ is an assembly of believers called out of the world to be God's people. Led and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the Church is the body of Christ working out His will in the world. It is also the temple of God on earth, showing His glory to the world. Today and every day, separate yourself from the world by embracing a holy life. Join yourself to the body and build up your brothers and sisters for the glory of Christ. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word, and thank you so much that it has the power to change hearts. Thank you that you use everyone. Thank you that you use people who are broken. Thank you that it's not dependent on us alone to reach the world. Thank you for choosing to use the broken people that form up the church all across the world to carry out your mission. And I pray that you would use us for that. I pray that you would prepare us for that. And I pray that you would help us as we go forth today to apply what we've learned about your church. Help us to live up to the call to be separate from the world. Help us to live up to the, uh, the call to build each other up so that we can be a holy temple, so that we can be obedient members of the body of Christ. Please strengthen us today, even as we go home, that we would um, build up our families for you, that we'd build up our friends and the people we meet, that we'd be effective witnesses, and for the discipleship groups that meet after this, that these would be times to foster that spirit of building each other up in you. We pray that you would continue to be with us and help us to grow in you. And it's in your name we ask all this. Amen.